1 Corinthians 13, we're going to be covering 1 Corinthians 13 and 14 today in summary. We have spent the last three weeks examining each of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and we've learned that their purpose is to benefit others, not necessarily ourselves, and the Holy Spirit gives them when He wants, to whom He wants, and why He wants. But this does leave a final question. In other words, what do these gifts look like in our church services? Well, Paul did not want us to be ignorant about spiritual gifts and their use, so he gave us two chapters full of instructions on how they're to be used when we gather together. Now, before we get into 1 Corinthians 13 and 14, just moving through it in summary, we do need to look at the various views in the church on how the gifts work in our services. So we're going to look at some of those today and then kind of fall on the, the one that's correct. So the first view that's out there you can find very common in churches today is what's called the cessationist view. And this is the viewpoint that the gifts, of the nine gifts here ended, or some of the nine gifts ended with the passing of the apostles. Their arguments would be this, that the gifts, these nine gifts were given only to the apostles, that their primary role was the initial spread of the gospel. And so once the gospel had been spread, they were no longer needed. For example, they would use Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 to prove this. Hebrews 2, 3 and 4, the writer says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. So that heard Jesus would be the apostles. God also bearing them, the apostles, witness in other words, confirming their testimony, both with signs and wonders and with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So they would say, well, then they, they did that, accomplished that job, so we don't need them anymore. Their role has been fulfilled. They would also teach that the Bible is complete, so the sign gifts are no longer needed. For example, they would quote 1 Corinthians 13, 8, where it says, love never fails, but if there are prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there are tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect, they would say that's the Bible, the Scriptures. When the Scriptures are complete, when that's come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. So they would say that the time of the gifts of the Spirit was the time of the immaturity of the church when it was young, and now that the Bible is complete, that we don't need the gifts of the Holy Spirit anymore because the church is mature. I don't agree with that, but that's what they teach. Lastly, they would point out, in their mind, that Paul began to lose this power in the latter part of his ministry. And they used for an example of that in 2 Timothy chapter 4.20, where Paul declares, Trophimus have I left at Miletus sick. So he could no longer heal at that point at the end of his ministry, they said. Now, I have issues with this view because the Bible has issues with this viewpoint. First off, if only the apostles were given these gifts, then why is Paul giving instructions about these gifts to everyone in the local church at Corinth? That makes absolutely no sense. You've wasted two chapters of information that applies to no one you're writing to. And yet he writes to a church that he says, you come behind in no gift, you're lacking in no gift, so they're clearly operating in them, and he writes to people who are not apostles. So that is a problem if you're staging your viewpoint on the fact that the gifts were only given to the apostles. 
Secondly, the idea that the primary role was the initial spread of the gospel doesn't make sense. While supernatural gifts of the Spirit were used in the aid of spreading the gospel, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 is clear that the Spirit bestows these gifts for everyone's benefit, not just unbelievers. They are given for everyone to profit, not just unbelievers to profit. In addition, 1 Corinthians 14, verses 4 and 5, says that he that prophesies edifies the church, not unbelievers. Prophecy can edify unbelievers, as we'll see later, but it also edifies the church. In verse 5, it says, tongues with interpretation works that the church may receive edifying. So, this doesn't make sense if its only role is to, uh, its role is to the primary spread of the gospel, the initial spread of the gospel. That makes no sense when the scriptures say that these gifts were for the use of the edification of the church. In addition, Paul commands the church in 1 Corinthians 14, 39 to not forbid to speak with tongues. If you were to walk in a cessation church today, they would forbid you to speak with tongues. They are disobeying the scripture. So if we take the cessationist view, then we are disobeying God's word, something I will not do. Thirdly, they make the point, they say, well, the Bible's complete, so the sign gifts aren't needed. Well, let's look at 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 11, and see if that's what it's talking about. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 8, love never fails. The word there means to fall away, that which is not needed anymore, that which loses its place. Love will never lose its place. Love will always be needed, Right? Aren't you glad about that, that you'll always experience the love of God, that you'll always experience love from the the family of God in eternity? I'm so glad for that. But there will be things that won't be needed someday. Whether there are prophecies, they shall fail. That's a different word for fail. It means to cease or to be rendered inoperative. There will be a time when no longer will the Holy Spirit give this gift. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Literally, the word there, cease, means to cause oneself to stop doing something. The reason he uses a different word here is because tongues is the one of the nine gifts of the Holy Spirit that you can bring up as you will. So he writes it in a different word in the middle voice to show that there will come a time when even though you had this language that you could speak that you didn't understand, that you will stop causing yourself to speak it because it won't be needed anymore. In addition, he says, knowledge shall vanish away. And that word knowledge is the same word as fail for prophecies. They will be rendered inoperative. The Holy Spirit will no longer give words of knowledge. So the idea is love will always be needed, but some things will not be always needed. So verse 9, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. Paul says the reason these gifts are part of our lives now is because this is a time of imperfection, a time of incompletion, a time where we have not reached that full state of completion yet. But there will come a time in the future when those gifts won't be necessary. Love will still be, but not these gifts. When is that time? When that which is perfect is come. Literally, it could be translated, but when the end is come. Yes, the word here means that which is fully accomplished, that which is finished. So it could be when something is completed. But this word is used most frequently in the New Testament to describe the end of God's plan and the return of Christ. In fact, two times Paul uses it this way in the book of 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, Paul says, referring to Jesus, who shall also confirm you unto the end. That's our same word as perfect here. That you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
What's that referring to? The return of Christ, right? 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24, same word is used here. Then comes the end, when he, Jesus, shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. Has that happened yet? No. No. So that which is perfect has not come. It's not the Bible, right? I'm so grateful my Bible's complete. I'm so grateful that I have everything that pertains to life and godliness in the knowledge of Him from the Scriptures. But this is not referring to the Bible. It cannot refer to the Bible. Keep reading. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Okay, so we got a contrast between the time of childish, childhood and maturity, or fully grown, completion. So what is the childish times? Verse 12, for now we see through a glass darkly. That's the childish times. They're still in existence. Listen, do you know everything perfectly now? Or do you still, as things a little fuzzy at times? Things are still a little fuzzy at times. But then, when? When I'm a man? Then face to face. When? When that which is perfect has come. Do you and I see face to face yet? No, we're still children then. We still have need of these things. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as I am known. Do you know even as you're known? Well, then it can't be the Bible. We have the Bible, but I still don't know as I'm known. I don't know things as God knows me. I will when I'm with him though, when Jesus comes back then I'll be face to face, but I'm not now. When I see Jesus face to face, I won't need someone to speak into my life about him, prophecy. I won't be limited by the confines of language in my worship or my prayer time. We will all know as we are known, we won't need words of knowledge. But for now, we do. The mirror is fuzzy. I don't know Jesus like he knows me. I'm imperfect. I'm incomplete still. I'm still maturing. So I need supernatural aid from these gifts of the Holy Spirit. So we reject this idea that the Bible is done, so we don't need them anymore. That is a bad exegesis of 1 Corinthians 13. And then lastly, the idea that Paul was losing his power as later end of his ministry, that's also built on an argument that doesn't understand the Scripture. You can't lose something you didn't have. We have studied very clearly from 1 Corinthians 12 that nobody has these gifts to command at beck and call. The Spirit gives them to whom He wants, when He wants, why He wants. So Paul could not lose a power to heal because he never had the power to heal whoever he wanted to. These gifts are not at our beck and call. So these are bad arguments. So we reject the cessationist viewpoint. Another viewpoint that you'll find very common in churches today is what we call the third wave charismatic movement or the signs and wonders or latter rain uh, ideology. This is the concept that, well, yes, we believe all these things. However, the Holy Spirit can do more things than what the Scripture says. They will use John chapter 14, verse 12 as their proof for this. In John 14, verse 12, the context is talking about the Holy Spirit and Him coming. Jesus says in that context, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believes on me, the works that I do, shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. Now, we know that when Jesus said he was going to the Father, he would send the Spirit, right? So, they're saying when the Spirit comes, you'll do even greater things than I did. 
So on that basis, they would say the Holy Spirit is going to enable the church believers to do more kinds of miracles and even greater miracles than the scriptures describe that Jesus did. I'll get into why that's a problem. So they would then say that there are times when the Holy Spirit will do things that aren't in the Bible, and therefore they can't be governed by the Scripture. For example, a common occurrence in Pentecostal, charismatic, third-wave churches is this concept of being slain in the Spirit, of where you pray for somebody or you just do something and a bunch of people fall over or an individual falls over, passes out, they're in this euphoric state of experiencing the presence of God. That's not in the Bible anywhere. You won't find anything in the Bible. The closest argument I've ever found to anyone even trying to be remotely biblical and defending it is they bring up the scripture in 1 Kings when Solomon built the temple and God's presence came inside, and it says that the priests could not stand to minister in the temple. They would say they all fell down. They went down under the power of the Holy Spirit's presence. That is, unfortunately, again, bad exegesis. The word stand there, it means to take your stand to serve. The idea is they could not serve in the temple because God's full glory was in there, which is not going to knock you down. It's going to make you a crispy critter. (laughs) The true biblical slain in the spirit. If his presence comes in like that, you're not going to live. So they had to leave. They could not stand to minister, to serve. It wasn't they couldn't stand on their feet. Another example I've heard is they say, well, when Jesus came, or when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus, they said, he said, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am. And they all fell down under the power of the Holy Spirit. No, that's not what it says. Look it up. The word fall there means to prostrate oneself. That's not falling backward into a euphoric state. That's falling on your face in worship. They were in awe of Jesus and they fell on their face worshiping, going, whoa, this is, this is more than just a man. They were terrified in complete control of their, their cognitive skills, not in this euphoric state where they didn't really know what was going on. There is no example of this in the Scripture. Deliverance ministry, the concept that demons of lust or demons of fear or demons of theft can be cast out of you, and then you'll no longer have problems with those sins. The Bible teaches very clearly, you'll never show me one Holy Spirit believer, New Testament believer who had a demon inside of him. You won't find it in the Bible. Just as you'll never see someone slain in this, but you'll never find a record of a church service where it says, and, and Paul prayed for a bunch of people and they fell down. Not once. You'll never find a record of anyone coming to a Christian, someone who had the Holy Spirit living inside of them, they're born again, praying for them, and a demon came out of them. Never. Not one occurrence. The Bible teaches that Greater is he that is in you than he that's in another part of you? Is that what it says? No. Greater is he that is in you than he that is not in you, outside of you, in the world. Jesus is living in my heart. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. When Jesus comes in, demons got to go. They cannot occupy the same space. I love the promise and the psalmist says, I don't remember which psalm, but he says, there shall be no unclean spirit in you. That's God's promise to the believers. I don't have to fear that. Now, does the devil attack us? Certainly. Does does the enemy forces, enemy spirits, do they oppress us? Yeah, they do. But they're not in us and they don't control us. The Bible says that we're his purchased possession. There's only one person who possesses the believer and that's Jesus. 
Holy laughter was a big thing in the 90s. It still crops up every once in a while. This idea that you can be so overwhelmed with the joy of the Lord that you become drunk in the spirit and you just kind of act like a, an inebriated person. You're just kind of giggling and laughing and you're out of control of yourself. Holy laughter is not in the Bible. You never find that experience in the Scripture. You'll never find a single example. They would use the verse where it says, Peter said, these men aren't drunk as you suppose, and he wouldn't say that unless they were acting drunk. No. He said it because it mentions that there were people who didn't like what was going on, and they critiqued them. And they said, don't listen to these people. They're drunk. And Peter said, no, there's no drunken behavior going on here. It's just it's the start of the day. No one's acting drunk. These men are filled with the Holy Spirit. What you're seeing is people who are in control of themselves. The Bible says that the fruit of the Spirit is not out of control, it's self-control. So when the Spirit of God's moving, you don't lose control. You're in control of yourself. I'm all for joy. I, I like to think of myself as, generally speaking, someone who enjoys the Lord and enjoys life, generally speaking. I get crabby like everybody else. So, especially when my wife goes away. <laughs> I don't know. I'm surprised the kids don't beg mom to come home whenever she goes away to speak or something like that. No, don't leave us with dad. <laughs> There's a difference between being filled with joy and in control and being out of control and acting like a fool. Prophetic readings, dream and top interpretation, these kind of come and go at times. I know people who have got closets full of prophetic readings. Listen, the Bible says this. If somebody tells you something's going to happen and they claim it's the Lord and it doesn't happen, don't listen to them anymore. All it takes is one failure and you don't listen to them anymore. Don't honor them. Don't fear them. Don't give them respect. I've had people come to me and say, you need to listen to this guy. Have him read your, your prophetic whatever. And I, I would say, why? That guy's a false prophet. I don't have to fear him. I don't have to honor him. I don't want him speaking into my life because I won't know if it's correct or not. In contrast, I have other people who've, over the years, they've said things and they've always come true. That's someone I like to go and ask, pray for me. But you don't need these prophetic readings. You don't need to have someone you know, read your future, interpret your dreams. You say, well, what about Joseph? What about Daniel? Again, two people in the Old Testament, isolated incidents. Nowhere is prophetic dream interpretation a gift of the Spirit. Nowhere. And we don't see it happen once in the New Testament. Does God give dreams and visions? Yes. But there's no one sitting in the church who's just sitting in a booth that says dream interpretation in front of it. That's not an office in the church, like pastor, pastor, worship leader, dream interpreter. No. One of these things is not like the other. One is in the Bible, or one is not. Never do you see people coming to pastors or the individuals for prophetic readings. What about Agabus? He predicted when a famine would come. Yes, but that doesn't mean that when, it, like we actually have times where it says, and prophets came up from, from Jerusalem to Antioch. But the next line doesn't read, and everyone came to them at Antioch, the Christians Antioch said, give me a prophetic reading. Because it didn't happen. Those things didn't happen in the Bible. Mass tongues, people just speaking in tongues. Word faith teachings that you can speak things into existence. These are not in the scriptures. And they would say, well, it doesn't matter because the Spirit of God is going to do greater things than even Jesus did, which I find to be highly arrogant. You say, but that's what Jesus said. No, it's not. The word greater there means greater in, larger in quantity, larger in scale. Not different. 
In other words, Jesus is saying these miracles are not just going to be restricted to my earthly ministry or even Israel. The Holy Spirit's going to expand their scale by using believers all over the world, and that's what the Holy Spirit's been doing for 2,000 years. No one's going to do anything greater than Jesus. I promise you that. But what Jesus did was in a locale. The Holy Spirit, he's expanded to everywhere. Amen? So we reject that, that idea. The third concept viewpoint you'll find in churches is the biblical viewpoint, which is we're just going to do what 1 Corinthians 13 and 14 say, which is where we land. <laughs> you see, with the ministry of gifts that Jesus gives and with the service gifts that the Father gives, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, the Bible just says use them in proportion to your faith. In other words, as you, as you trust the Lord, go use them. There are no rules. In contrast, these nine gifts of the Holy Spirit have specific instructions how they're to be used when we gather. So that means we need to follow them. So what are they? Well, point number one, this is how we're going to use the gifts in our services. This is the biblical viewpoint. Number one, love is the greatest thing that we can bring to our gatherings. Paul devotes an entire chapter to the importance of love when we gather together. He says, listen, verse 1, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and I don't have love, I'm just making noise. If we have people speaking in tongues at our church and there's no love here, like you're not coming and you're saying, I want to show people that I love them, then all we've done is made a bunch of noise. And though I have the gift of prophecy, understand all mysteries and all knowledge, though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains and I have not shared, have not love, I am nothing. There are those who say, well, you know, I'm a prophet of God, or I have great faith, whatever. And we go, ooh, that's a mighty man of God. That's a mighty woman of God. Paul says, yeah, well, if you don't have love, you're nobody. You're nothing. Isn't that crazy how we value things? Paul says, you want to know who's the somebody in the church? When they come and they show up and we gather together and they just love people. They are somebody in the church. Paul says, though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, though I give my body to be burned and I have not love, it profits me nothing. It does me no good. Oh, you could be a martyr for Jesus and it does you no good. You get no reward if you don't have love. That's right, Paul says. I love that second song that we sang this morning. It's one of my all-time favorites. I, when it pops up in my, my Spotify, I just hit repeat over and over again. I, you know, I give everything just to be by your side. I'd lay down my life just to be by your side, Jesus. Love that line. Love that song. But you know what I found? Jesus probably isn't asking anyone in here to give up their life for him. He's saying, hey, could you love your spouse for me? Could you love your kids for me? Could you love your coworkers for me? Love your brothers and sisters for me? That's what I'd, I'd like you to do. Some of us think, it's easier to be martyred, Jesus. Love is the greatest thing you can bring on a Sunday morning or to a small group fellowship. All of us can bring that every time we come. Amen? So that's point number one. Point number two, even though love's the greatest thing that we can bring to our gatherings, we should also desire spiritual gifts in our gatherings. Chapter 14, verse 1. Paul says, follow after love. The word there means to do something with intense effort, to make it your goal. Each of us should show up to a church gathering with the intention of showing God's unconditional love to our brothers and sisters. That's a given. Can you imagine if we all came to church with the mindset, I want to 
at least one person day, I want them to know how much I love them. Can you imagine if, and I think we do that at our church, you know, for the most part. I think probably most of you do have that heart. But can you imagine if we were all purposeful and before we came to church, we spent some time in prayer. We said, Lord, I want one person to know how much I love them today. Put one person in front of me that I can just tell them, man, I love you or show them I love you in some way. That'd be pretty awesome, wouldn't it? I think that's what makes our church special. I do think that happens, but I think we need to do it more and all of us need to do it. All of us can do that. But while that is our primary goal, you and I should also be setting our heart. That's what the word desire means. Desire spiritual gifts also. It means set your heart on letting the Spirit use us with one of these nine gifts. And then he says specifically, the word rather means even more than any of the other gifts that you might prophesy. Specifically, that you would be able to speak into somebody's life. So when we gather, we should be coming with two things at least. Lord, I want to show somebody today how much I love them. I want to show somebody today if they're loved. And then two, I want to speak into someone's life. All of us should be coming with that on our heart and with that in our mindset, which brings up an important question. When you're headed to a gathering with other believers, whether it's a Sunday morning or a Tuesday night study or Thursday morning, Thursday night, whatever it might be, when, whenever we gather with other believers, have you set your heart on that? You know, are, are you praying before you come on a Sunday morning or a Sunday night or one of the, the small group fellowships, are saying, Spirit of God, I'm on my way to church today or I'm on my way to Bible study today. I want you to use me today. Especially, I want you to use me, give me a chance to speak into someone's life, either to edify them, to make them stronger in their faith, to exhort them, to move them to take action and obedience to you, or to comfort them, to console their pain or their hurt. I want you to use me to speak into their life today. Is that how you approach church gatherings? Do you come with that prayer in your heart? Now, if the answer is no, I think the reason we often fail to do this is because, here's the truth of it, many of us are just not walking daily with the Lord. And so church or Bible study become afterthoughts. They just, oh, it's Sunday, I got to go, you know, and the alarm goes off and you got to get in the shower and you got to put the clothes on and, and then you got to take the clothes off because they're not going to work today because sister so-and-so, she wore that last week. So put on, and you put on the next thing. And then and by that time, you got to get the kids ready or whatever, or get your stuff ready. And then you, you hop in the car, and you just want to get there in time because you don't want to be late. Boom, you sit down like, all right, I'm here. Yeah. Which is awesome. And please keep coming. But the mentality of just showing up is definitely not what the Scripture commands us. Definitely not. Like, that's definitely not the result that Paul's looking for, that God's looking for as he instructs the church in the New Testament. All of us. Like, people know, like, before service, don't, don't come disturb Pastor Will because I like to spend time praying and seeking the Lord because I, I don't want to get up here and be in the flesh. But I shouldn't be the only one who's doing that. Because what you're to bring to the service is equally as important as what I'm bringing to the service. All of us should be spending time before a gathering saying, all right, Lord, I'm heading over here. I want to receive from you, but I want to also be used by you. Give me something to speak into someone's life, either to edify them, to comfort them, or exhort them. I tell you what, if that was our goal as a church, and everybody was coming doing that, prepped like that, People would be saying, you got to see what's happening at Calvary Chapel, Orlando. Because the Spirit of God wants to work. He wants to use you. All too frequently, because we're not in the Word throughout the week, 
and we do just kind of show up. See, we, I'm not trying to be critical. I'm just trying to be factual. The church experience in the U.S. has become a consumer experience. It's become a consumer experience. We, I show up and you give me something to consume, whether it's excitement or even a good teaching, either, either way. Whether it's a good, good thing or a carnal thing, either way, we, we tend to come with a consumer mentality. We don't tend to show up with the idea of a service mentality. Now, again, for all of you who are, you come like that and you do you know, speak into people's lives and you come prayed up, prepped up, ready to go, or you're serving in some capacity, I'm, I'm not talking about that. But the church as a whole, and I I do think it probably impacts our church to some degree, because I'll have people who will come and be like, oh, I I didn't like the worship music, or I didn't, you know, this consumer mentality. I have worshiped in all sorts of places over the course of my life. I've worshiped in in very high churches, you know, with a lot of the, you know, robes and, you know, an official, you know, we sing this way and only this way. And I've been in churches that are very chill, laid back. I've been in foreign churches where they do things a little bit differently in other countries. But in every one of those environments, the ability to worship is always up to me. It's never up to what the worship team is doing or anybody else. The ability to get something out of a sermon, and I've heard some stinkers. Seriously, I've been to conferences and I'm just like, thank you for wasting 67 minutes of my time that I can never get back because someone decided to give you a platform. But even in those teachings, whether I get something out of it or not is up to me, not them. Always. So we need to come with more than just a consumer mindset. We need to come with a, a heart that says, Lord, I want, I want to give. I want to speak into someone else's life in some way. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. If you haven't walked with, uh, so the idea is we come as a, with a consumer mindset, and so as a result, our weekly life is really devoid of Bible reading time, prayer time, time spent with the Lord. And here's the truth, I mean, and you know what this is probably like. You show up to a Bible study, you know, everybody's talking about what the Lord's doing in their life, what they've been learning in their Bible, and they're like, hey, it's your turn, and you're like, I got nothing. I'm going to give the generic, well, you know, I'm just really trying to be thankful. Or what do you need prayer for, Will? I'd like uh, just an unspoken prayer request unspoken prayer request? What is that? Like, what is, how does provoke one another to love and good works? Well, I've just got an unspoken prayer request. How does that provoke anybody to love and to good works? Now, I realize there are some things that may be very private. I'm not talking about that. But there are those times where you got nothing, and so you kind of do the generic. I've been in that spot, and it's an awful spot to be going, Lord, I'm here but I don't really have anything to offer because I haven't sat at your feet to receive anything lately. That tends to be why we don't show up ready to pour into somebody. You know, I I think sometimes we mistake this. We think to ourselves, okay, so show up to pour into somebody means like I've got to have some great word from the Lord. Most of the time when God speaks through me into someone else's life, it's because I'm just sharing what I learned in my devotion four days ago or two days ago or this morning. I said, oh, hey, that's really cool that you're going through that. You know, the Lord was speaking this to me in my heart. And uh, someone would be like, what? I'm like, yeah, he was speaking this to my heart. Bro, I needed to hear that. What, really? Awesome. But it's not because it's like I woke up and the Lord's like, William, my son, (laughs) dost thou remember the thing that I spoke to thee on Monday at 4 p.m.? 
Yes, Lord. That's when we was in Ephesians 4. Yes, my son, you're going to meet a man in a red uh, shirt, and you're going to speak into his life these words, my son. Thank you, Father. And then I go looking for people with red shirts on. I'm not saying God can't do that. But that's not how this usually works. It's usually just in very natural conversation because you're just sharing the wonderful fruits that God brought to your life as you sat at his feet. So the reason we don't tend to come that way is because we're not doing that. So we show up to a Bible study and we're just there. Now, that doesn't mean that if you haven't been walking with the Lord, don't show up. That's not what I'm saying. All right? The best place to be when you're not walking with the Lord is to show up. So don't be condemned by this. Just be challenged. What we're aiming for is to show up filled with God's Spirit and desiring to be used to bless somebody else. That's that's Paul's whole point of verses 4 through 20. So point one, love is the greatest thing we can bring to our gatherings. Point two, we should all desire to be used with these nine spiritual gifts. Point three, our mindset should be others-centered. I'm not going to read all of verses 4 through 20, but just point out a couple things. Verse 6, now, brethren, if I come unto you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you except I speak to you either by revelation or by knowledge or by prophesying or by teaching? In other words, what shall I profit you? Others-centered mindset. Look at verses 18 through 20. I thank my God that I speak with tongues more than all of you. Yet in the church, I had rather speak five words with my understanding that by my voice I might teach others also than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. Brethren, don't be children in understanding, howbeit in malice be ye children, but in understanding be men. In other words, be mature, be others centered. Our mindset should be others centered. Point number four. When we're talking about how the gifts of the Spirit should be used in our services, the type of gathering we ha- we're having must be considered. Verse 21, Paul says, In the law it is written, With men of other tongues and other lips will I speak unto this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me, says the Lord. Paul's quoting Isaiah here, and God told Isaiah, Since my people will not listen to the plain teaching of my prophets in a language they can understand, I'm going to get their attention by sending the Assyrians who speak a language they can't understand to defeat them. That's how I'll get their attention. Now, Paul uses this verse here and says, that's the case there, but it had a dual fulfillment. God was also telling Isaiah that he would use foreign languages as a miracle to reach unbelieving Jews in the future during the church age. And God did that on Pentecost, didn't he? Through the unbelieving Jews there, hearing the disciples praising God in their own language, not the disciples' language, but in all these languages they that were of the people who were gathered, because they saw that miracle, they were interested in what the disciples had to say about Jesus, and of course, many were saved on that day. I need to point out something important. That was not a church service. That was not a church service. They were on the roof of a home celebrating the Feast of Passover. And so when Paul quotes this here, he says, guys, Pentecost was awesome. Just a bunch of believers out in the wild, walking with Jesus, and boom, the Holy Spirit moved to reach the unbelievers who were nearby. And that's how the Holy Spirit will use the gifts of the Spirit when we're out in the wild, when we're out not in a church gathering setting. But he says this, verse 23, that's not how our church services should operate. He says, if, therefore, the whole church gathers together in one place. When we're all gathered in one place... That's not how it works. He says, if you are all to gather together in one place and all speak with tongues, and there come in those who are unlearned, they're new believers, or they're unbelievers, will they not say that you're mad? 
In other words, if we allow a free-for-all mentality in our church services where unbelievers are invited to visit, we want them here. You might invite a neighbor or a coworker or a family member that doesn't know the Lord, come to church. We encourage them to come to church, our Sunday morning services. Come on down. Well, if they come and everyone is speaking in tongues or whatever's going on, they're going to go, this is weird. What's happening? Y'all are crazy. And rightfully so. Therefore, in the services where the entire church gathers, what do we focus on? Verse 24, but if all prophesy and there come in one that doesn't believe or one is unlearned, he is convicted of all. He's judged by all and thus the secrets of his heart are made manifest, revealed. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is in you of a truth. In other words, if people get up and speak, whether through testimony or teaching or whatever, and God speaks to his heart or her heart, that unbeliever or that new believer, they're going to worship the Lord and go, I heard the Lord. They're not going to need any explanation because the ministry of preaching and teaching or sharing something from the Lord's heart is something that doesn't look weird or crazy. Small group gatherings where only portions of the church are gathered are very different. Rarely are you going to find an unbeliever at a home group or an unbeliever at like a Tuesday night study. They might be there, but even if they were there in that small setting, that small setting provides the opportunity to have conversation and explain what's going on. This setting does not. I can't tell you how many times somebody's walked out before I even start teaching. Now, some of that, not our fault. But there have been some times when I've talked to the worship team and been like, hey guys, keep it on the level. Let's not get weird. You know, if somebody's an unbeliever, they're coming in. I, I remember we had one time, we had two new believers come into the other church I pastored, and we sang that song, Hosanna. You are the God who saves us, worthy of all our praises. They left after worship. Well, I found out later on is because they thought we were worshiping Hosanna, and they came there to worship someone named Jesus. Yeah, I was heartbroken. You know, I kind of be like, come back, come back. Hosanna, dude, you don't know what it means. That's the point. You don't know what it means. We shouldn't be confusing up here. Keep it simple. That's why the main focus of our study is to keep them simple. We teach the Word of God, and we keep all the cookies in the lowest shelf so even the newest believer can grab one. Oh, we need to be up here, and, be, you know, and we need to tell things as they are. You can tell things as they are and still speak the language everybody understands. You don't need to be a pompous jerk to preach the gospel. I've been, oh, I, I, I'm done. <laughs> we'll end it there. Point five. So point four was the type of gathering you're having must be considered. Point five, all of our gatherings must be orderly. In verse 26, Paul says, how is it then, brethren? In other, how is it sounds a little harsh. It just means what's, what's going on, brethren? When you come together, every one of you has a song. Someone has a song to share. Someone has a teaching. Someone has a tongue, has a revelation, an interpretation for that tongue. He says, that's fine. Let all things be done to edifying, though. Our the edification of the entire church must be maintained. He says, come, be prepared for God to use you, but remember that the Holy Spirit will always move in a public way that blesses the entire congregation. It's not about you highlighting yourself or your gifting. Things need to be done in an orderly way. So there's orderly roots for tongues, verse 27 and 28. If any man speak in an unknown tongue, let it be by two or by the most by three, and that by course. In other words, not all at the same time. One then one, and then at the most, a third person, and then one person interprets all three. And if no one interprets, then 
The people who spoke, they need to keep silence in the church, not make any more disruptions of the service. Let them speak to themselves and to God. It was meant for private use, not for public use. Either way, when three, someone's spoken in tongues and someone interprets, that's it. It's over. There's no more speaking in tongues in the service. That's what the scripture says. People say, well, that's, that's really close-minded. Take it up with Paul. Take it up with the Holy Spirit. Take it up with Jesus. These are the rules he laid out for us. So there should not be constant speaking in tongues in a service. Orderly rules for prophecy, verses 29 through 33. Let the prophet speak two or three. Let the other judge. If there anything be revealed to another that sits by, let the first hold his peace. For all you may prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be comforted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, harmony, tranquility, as in all the churches of the saints. In other words, for prophecy, speakers during a public service should be structured, not unplanned. They should be structured. They should speak in turn, not in tandem. None of this, you got Pastor Fred and Pastor's wife, Pastor Fredette over here, and, and they're going to tandem teach. And Pastor Fred's like, and the Lord said, da, 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 da. right, Fredette? Yeah, Pastor Fred. Da, 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 da. No, no. There's no tandem teaching, one at a time. They don't interrupt each other. Not a, they don't speak on top of each other. We structure our services this way. We give freedom to our worship team and leaders to exhort you and encourage you. Then someone comes up, and I hope in the power of the Spirit, they pray. And then I or someone else comes and teaches. We, we have everything structured and in turn. We're not on top of each other. We're not in tandem. Now, you say, well, that's very limiting. Yes, it is. Night of prayer is one meeting where we set aside time for the congregation to use the gift of prophecy. But even then, it is a directed meeting. It's structured. Always should be. In every meeting we have, finally, speakers are held accountable to the prophets. Spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets, the ones we know spoke from God. It's all subject to Scripture always. And if someone says something that doesn't align with Scripture, then the other speakers say, that wasn't of the Lord. Verses 34 and 35, really don't want to touch that. No. Orderly rules for the congregation. Something to point out here, important. Paul doesn't say, let all women keep silence in the churches. He says, let your women keep silence in the churches. In other words, there was a problem in Corinth, a unique problem. The word keep silence here is the same verb used up in verse 27 or, or 28 when it talks about the person who spoke in tongues publicly, and he says, let them stop make, creating a disturbance. That's what the word here, keep silent, means. Let your women in Corinth stop interrupting the services. We already know he can't mean that he's saying don't, don't ever speak because in 1 Corinthians eleven five, 5, when talking about women, he says, if a woman prays or prophesies publicly, just make sure that her, her veil is on. So Paul's not, he doesn't contradict himself, so he has no problem with a woman speaking or, or praying publicly in a church service. What he's saying is, is there can be no disruptions. And this was a problem in Corinth. Corinth had a unique problem that when the women got saved, they looked at all the cultural mores in their society placed upon women, they decided to throw them all away. Some of them needed to be thrown away. I would not want to be a woman today, just being blunt. All right? I would not want to be a woman today. 
all the pressures put upon you, you got to be 18 things all at the same time. Like, and can I set you free? You don't need to be anything anybody else tells you except Jesus tells you to be. Don't worry about what anybody else says. So they threw it all away. They stopped wearing veils and they sought to interact with men in a way that was not healthy. The veil back then, the only people, women who didn't wear veils were prostitutes in Corinth. So can you imagine what it was like? He's going, honey, I'm in Christ. I'm free. I don't need to wear this thing anymore. Okay. Then you go out and every dude's looking at your wife going, oh, she's free for hire. Paul says, that's a bad testimony. So he spends a whole chapter telling him, put your veil back on. In the same way, with this, they were treating themselves like, well, we, we, should, have, we should be able to have a relationship with the, the pastors and the teachers like all the other guys do. And Paul says, no. This is not a rabbi-student relationship that you can have with the pastor. You can't just ask a question in the middle of service. It doesn't work that way. This is not a rabbinical type of a setting. So stop interrupting. If you have a question, go ask your husband at home. Now, I'm not saying ladies don't ever ask me a question. But I have had spoken to some ladies at times who keep coming to me with questions. And I explain to them, I say, listen, this is probably inappropriate for you to be coming to me with these in-depth, heartfelt questions about your spiritual life all the time. Because I'm a man. The Bible says where your treasure is, your heart is. And this is one of my treasures. Wherever you have a treasure for something, your heart goes with it. And my heart belongs to one woman, unless you count my two daughters. I don't want to give it to anyone else. So Paul was saying, come on, ladies. Don't respond to the problems of your society by swinging to the opposite extreme. Put others first like all Christians are supposed to. Stop interrupting the services. In the same way, our services are structured where someone speaks and the group listens. We have smaller group meetings where we allow discussion and things like that but not on a Sunday morning. We don't tend to have this problem. I've had it happen a few times, and I've had to tell people. Funny enough, it's always a woman. I'm, I'm, I'm not making any point. I'm just saying it's interesting. It's always been a woman who I'll be teaching, and they'll stand up and go, Pastor, I've got a question. And I'm like, come see me afterwards. Or ask your husband at home. But that's the point. Our services are focused to giving the, the speakers our full attention and listening to what the Lord has to say through them. Point six, I know I'm way late, tough. <laughs> Point six, stay humble. What, did the word of God come out from you? <laughs> or did it come to you only? If any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him do this. Let him acknowledge the things that I write unto you. These, 1 Corinthians 13 and 14, that they're the commandments of the Lord. But if anyone wants to be ignorant, let him be ignorant. You want to keep going this way? Fine. I'm not going to argue with you. But if you really have been called by God or given a gift by the Holy Spirit, then a humble attitude toward those gifts is revealed but with a, by a submissive heart. That you're willing to place yourself underneath the structure of the service instead of put yourself forward. If you're pushing your way to be heard, then you've missed the point of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. It's not about how great you can be used by God. Pride is a work of the flesh. Stay humble. So, six things. Love is the greatest thing we can bring to our gatherings. We should desire to be used by the Holy Spirit. Our mindset should be other-centered. The type of gathering must always be considered. All of our gatherings must be orderly. And lastly, stay humble. This ends our study on the Holy Spirit. 
If you want to learn more about it or go more in depth, I encourage you to get the book Living Water by Chuck Smith. Phenomenal book on the Holy Spirit. It's impacted my life. I've read it three times. It's incredible. But since love is the greatest thing that we can bring to our gatherings, then what a great capstone to our study in the Holy Spirit to celebrate the Lord's Supper, to remember His love for us because it's His love for us that's our chief motivator to love Him and love others, right? Which is the whole point of why we gather. We want to love others. We want to be others-minded. We want to serve the Lord. And all of that stems from our love for Jesus and our love for Him is because He loved us first. So Lord, we give this time to you of remembering you in this, this ritual, this supper. We give it to you, Lord, to remember your love. And then, Lord, in light of that, to be willing to say, Lord, use me. Maybe there might be some here this morning who are thinking, I don't, I don't, I don't think God can ever use me to speak into somebody's life. Lord, you can use all of us that way. Paul just said, I desire that you'd all prophesy. So Lord, would you move in our hearts and remind us of your love again, that we would yield everything to you and say, Lord, I'll do whatever you want me to do. Here I am. Send me. In Jesus' name, amen.